Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner, and I'll be joined here shortly by my co-host, Taylor. Uh, before we get to that, we have some new patrons that we'd like to thank. So we want to say thank you to William and Claire. Uh, we hope you enjoy the back catalog of bonus episodes over on Patreon, and we have some more good stuff coming over there in the future. Uh, just a note here about our Patreon output coming up here. It wasn't a great month for us productivity-wise, uh, so we didn't get around to recording a bonus. But we will be recording one next week and putting that out the first week of July. And then we'll have another coming out later in July uh, to make up for that. A lot of stuff uh, happening this month. Uh, so we just didn't get around to doing that extra bonus episode. Uh, so with that, let's bring in Taylor. How's it going? It's pretty good. Uh, pretty good. It's a nice Sunday morning. We're supposed to get some thunderstorms later. So yeah, us too. We that, need it. It's, it's, been a, it's been a veritable drought here the last few weeks. Yeah, we've gotten some rain lately, but we could definitely use more. But uh, let's see. Media-wise, I'm almost done with Wars of the Roses by Dan Jones. It's really good, but it's so complicated. Hmm. Parts of it read like parts of the Old Testament, where so-and-so begat so-and-so. <laughs> it's very confusing, and also people have like two or three different names for the same person. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, and then like you don't realize how many, like, you know they're all related, but you don't realize how they're all related. Like, a lot of times mm -hmm. it's like cousins or aunts and uncles fighting each other, and you don't even realize it. So, mm -hmm. if you could fully comprehend the entire thing, it would be such an interesting read. But there are times I have to keep like going back and be like, how does this person connect to this person? Uh, it's a bit like reading a big fantasy series like the like the Malazan Book of the Fallen or something where mm -hmm. you kind of have to assess as you're going through the story. Does this person need to take up space in my brain mm -hmm. or not? You know, is this, is this going to be a one off mention or is this person going to be important later? Someone will be like first Lord of Badgerton upon Oxbridge. And then like <laughs> someone else will be the first Lord of Badgerton upon Oxbridge when a new King comes. So it, there's just a lot to keep track of. A lot of blood will be shed to become first Lord of Badgerton. <laughs> um, other than that, I've been playing overwatch pretty hard. They have a new season out. Um, it's been a lot of fun. It's such a weird community because like 10% of it's super toxic and awful. And then like 90% of it is actually really cool, but it's fun. It's a, it's a fun game. It sounds like Warhammer. That's, that's it's, about it's, how that community It's is. a lot like that kind of a fan base almost of like, there's a really vocal like minority that is gross. And then there's like everyone else that's just trying to have fun. Yeah. A, a substantial portion of the Warhammer community. It's you'd kind of like to sit them down in a room and just talk to them about like, none of these people are real. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> right. None of these things happened. The Horus heresy did not happen. But yeah, that's been fun. That the news I've enjoyed the new season. They have some, some cool stuff in there. So that's what I've been up to. How about you? Uh, I've been plugging away at Jeffrey Parker's emperor, a new life of Charles V. I'm about halfway through. And as I was reading it uh, yesterday morning, a few pieces jumped out at me since we just finished talking about his son, Philip II, extensively mm -hmm. in the Armada series. In the first episode, we talked quite a lot about his personality, his agonizingly slow decision making. Um, this is the king that gave us the phrase, time and I are one, you know, in defense of his procrastination. Uh, also, his unwillingness to delegate tasks to subordinates. So instead, he always needing to be the one making decisions, even mm -hmm. when he didn't really have great expertise. And there was one quote I wanted to share that just jumped out at me as like, huh, maybe this is where he got it from. <laughs> this is quoting from uh, one of his ministers uh, saying, The emperor did it himself, seeking advice from no one, as he normally does with matters that concern his will and authority. There's no one in his dominions great or wise enough to make him change his mind unless he believes the common sense requires him to do so. I've observed many princes of various ages, but I've known none who takes more trouble to understand his own affairs and takes decisions more inflexibly on what affects him. He is his own treasurer in peace and war, and he confers offices, bishoprics, and titles according to God's inspiration without regard to any pleas he may receive. And I read that and I was thinking, hmm, like that is... 
there is some family resemblance there. <laughs> it is it is always interesting when you see that. Especially because like the way that you know that worked out, Philip was of an age where he was he was old enough to be learning things directly from his father about how to do this, how to govern, what mm-hmm. do you need to do uh when you are king. And so I think that's really interesting to see that that sort of lineage being passed down of, you know, where did Philip get some of his quirks from? Um, with Philip, maybe they were even a bit more filtered out uh, to be more extreme. Um, but it's interesting to see that progression through history of where where do people learn these things from? Right. Yeah, no, that's it is super interesting. I think in addition to that, for both of us, a lot of our media time this week has been spent keeping up with the saga of the Titan submersible. Yes. Uh, and the five aboard who went down to the Titanic wreck site and did not come back up halfway to the Titanic and are now part of the Titanic wreck site. Yeah. Like here's the thing. I think it's interesting. Like we've talked about it a ton, you know, as it was going on. And I think it's really interesting that a lot of the shipwreck people that we know, a lot of the Navy people, Coast Guard people, we know right away. Everyone's like, it's gone. It, It imploded. Like it does not exist. And then, like, the narrative changed in the popular media of, like, it was fun to put the countdown clock on there about how much air they had left. And, like, they wanted it to be, like, a mind disaster story or something where, like, we have these stories. Right. And I feel like just the people that I respect and know in this field, none of them were saying that was likely. Like, everyone was like, no, it's gone. You you go a little bit tinfoil hat here, but like it benefits the mainstream media to construct this narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really does. I mean, it gives them something to talk about for a few days, something that people tune in for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was watching the live stream on I think it was a news network out of Tampa. They they had a very good live stream um, mm-hmm. and then the anchors did a, a good job covering a story like that in real time. But again, it's like that's it helps them to have that narrative. It's um, but at the same time, it's like he, you know, the, the thing with the, the Navy detecting it days before mm-hmm. it was discovered and on the surface. Yeah, that sounds bad. But at the same time, like, I think if you look at it from the other perspective, um, if the Navy picks up this sound and they tell the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard says, oh, well, they're dead. We're not going to we're not going to look for them anymore. Mm-hmm. What would people say about that if right. there was a possibility they were still alive? So, right. Yeah, it, it looks bad, but I think you understand why these things happen. Yeah, and it was interesting, even when they're talking about, like, oh, we can hear knocking. And it's like, no, you, no, you don't. Yeah. You, you don't, because this is not the way this works at that depth. It just yeah. isn't. And, like, I think of, like, the thresher and stuff like that, where people talk about hearing knocking, and, like, that was never the case. A great story for, for, for Twitter to, to have hold of in terms of... Yeah, it was tailor-made for Twitter to have a good time running for wild. I think my biggest takeaway from that is... You, obviously, you had that you had the two major camps developing on Twitter between I think this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I think this is a horrible tragedy. Um, Why not both? No one can obligate you to feel a certain way about something. Right. I don't think you're obligated to find this funny or obligated to find this tragic. You might have you might pick a little from both camps. Mm-hmm. There's elements I think that it's undeniable is one or the other. Mm-hmm. You've got a 19 year old, uh, a kid, basically. Mm-hmm. who's on on it because his his dad's a huge Titanic fan and he doesn't want to go and he gets on it and he loses his life. That's undeniably tragic. Yeah, he is truly the only one I actually really feel bad for. Like, even if he is a, a millionaire's kid and he's probably going to grow up to be the same well, type of person. He won't be able to go to those Blink-182 shows like the other kid. Like, that's undeniably tragic. I, I, don't, I don't see any way around that. Um, mm-hmm. Also, on the other side of things, a guy, you know, getting pulverized by his own shoddily built contraption after saying, I'm curious about what possible concerns the uninformed might have about this. That's really funny to be killed by your own invention that you have said those things about. I mean, it's literally like why there's the Darwin Awards, isn't there? It is dark humor par excellence, I would say. (laughs) I don't know how you get around that. Every Mm -hmm. new detail that came out about this thing, it, it just like, come on. Well, like when you see like the blatant disregard for any sort of actual safety standard. When you're being told this by people in the industry who've done this, mm-hmm. when there are people like, say, a James Cameron who has made dives like this, what, like 30 times, there are standards in this industry. Oh, and like if I'm a James Cameron type figure, like this kind of thing angers me. Like don't cheapen what I've done by making it seem like anyone 
you know, that with a couple million dollars can do this. Like, I was really conflicted in how half of the people were talking about it. Like, this guy was just some rich guy with nothing better to do. Mm-hmm. And the other half were talking about them like they were earnest. Pioneers. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, no, they aren't. They're not. Diving on the Titanic isn't new. These guys weren't doing any sort of groundbreaking research. Like, to me, it sounds like they were making a quarter million dollar a pop to take people to the Titanic. And mm. I don't know that that's something I need or want. Yeah, and I know that's a big, I know it's a big uh, divisive issue before that in like the Titanic community specifically of, mm-hmm. is it ethical to even be visiting this? You know, this is a mass grave. Yeah, and that gets into a weird thing because I know people were saying like, well, you go visit battlefields, but like mm-hmm. I can walk to a battlefield right. and, and experience, I can touch the same grass at Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. If I dive on the Titanic, I'm looking through a little tiny porthole, mm-hmm. which apparently didn't have good enough glass in it is what I'm hearing, that the glass <laughs> right. was not certified for that amount of pressure. Right. But like, wh- what do you get out of that? What do yeah. you get out of physically being close to the Titanic? I don't, I don't understand it. I know we're in a weird place because like, we're just not a Titanic. Like, we purposely have said from the beginning, right. like, we don't do Titanic because it is a weird thing. I have a hard time having sympathy for someone who did it to themselves. I think that's a, a good place to be falling there. And I think uh, regards in regards to what we do with this show, I mean, as much as possible, we try to learn something or find something that has been learned from a story and, you know, seeing uh, the occasional probably semi-serious comment about, oh, like the Beyond the Breakers episode about the Titan. And it's one of those things where that episode would take about five minutes. Yeah. The lessons you could draw from this have been known for decades, probably in most cases. Yeah. I mean, I feel like they were known to the company and they chose to ignore them. I don't know what to take from that. Yeah, it's like, I think I tweeted it out, like, they kind of like the uberfication of this, of just the cheapening of any sort of exploring. It's sort of the same thing with, like, your people complain about Mount Everest and how there's a Mm -hmm. line of people to get to the top. Like, I think we assume that these things aren't dangerous just because they're kind of relatively easy to do now. Mm -hmm. And, like, they're still really dangerous. Everest is a great example of more people can do it now, but it's like, also, technology has never been better. Preparation and training has never been better. I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you have enough money, you can do whatever you want. Whether or not you should do that is a different thing. There's explanations for why these things are commodified and they become more common. But as we as we see every week, it's like the the ocean's not something that you uh, take for granted. Mm-hmm. As we'll see in the story that we'll finally get to telling today is <laughs> even a a small mistake, a small oversight can end up in tragedy. Mm-hmm. So when... of your operation is done in a way that's inadvisable and, you know, against accepted safety practices, you're almost guaranteed to find yourself in a tragic situation. Yeah, I think like kind of my final thought on it for now, at least, and it could change, obviously, as we learn more, but like, if you don't respect, like the ocean and what it can do, this is what happens to you. Mm hmm. Like, if you think that, like, just because you have some money and you're relatively smart and you can design something, you still have to respect the ocean that it's really dangerous. I mean, you have to get everything right when you're doing something like that. The the initial quote and the one that I think that still sticks with me the most is from that video where he says he's talking about it having, you know, this single button operating it like an elevator. And he says something like it it should be simple. It, mm-hmm. it should be simple to operate. Um and yeah, my thoughts on that were if I'm if I'm diving to 13,000 feet under the ocean, please, for the love of God, give me a machine that is complicated to, to operate. Sometimes specialty is important, right? Yeah, like I, I don't want any any person to be able to operate. I, I want a trained individual who, who who needs experience with doing these things. So yeah, please give me if you're going to do that, like I give me the most complicated machine you've got. Right. Like in theory, could I fly a 737 with autopilot? Absolutely. Should I? Probably not. For a little bit, yes. Yeah. Like I can do the, the flying part, I guess, but then it's going to be time to land. Said Muhammad Atta. <laughs> I'm on a list now. So we'll probably circle back to some of those themes at the end of the episode. I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk about this. So with all that, let's get into the story this week. Let's do it. Also, as a note, if you're looking through the notes and you notice typos i was typing this last night with fairly severely burned fingertips on my right hand oh no because i microwaved water in did you i burn guess yourself on? i guess a mug that i don't normally use in the microwave and oh no did you get a little antsy i just grabbed it and oh. 
burned the heck out of my index and ring uh, middle finger on I, my I right think hand. The, the worst microwave burn I ever got was like a microwave mac and cheese. And like I just reached in too quickly and like stuck my finger in it right away. And it was like napalm as it like coated my finger and would not come off. Is that how you always eat mac and cheese? <laughs> the Ron DeSantis? <laughs> I didn't mean to. Like I just was pulling it out and stuck my hand in it by accident. <laughs> All right. So with that, we'll get into our episode here. Good to have a little bit of levity between the Titan Submersible and our story. Yes. The topic of our episode today is the Stern Trawler Gaul. Uh, based out of Hull, England. Note about the source material here. Multiple investigations and reports for a single incident isn't necessarily new. You know, sometimes we might have an NTSB report and a Coast Guard report. Um, we saw this also a while back with the investigations into the collision between the Melbourne and the Voyager in Australia mm -hmm. um, that had multiple investigations. So for reasons that we'll get into, the original investigation yielded very little. Mm hmm into what happened to this vessel due to continued pressure availability of new technology. There was another investigation that was a few decades later. In addition to these, there's the MAIB report on the incident. So the main sources for this episode are that MAIB report and uh, that, that covers more of the technical aspects of the sinking and that reopened government reports that covers a bit wider of a context. One thing that I'm thinking of already, and like I have zero idea if this is true, is the British government more willing to reopen these cases? Because I think of like the MV Derbyshire, like they reopened that case much later on. I believe there's another parallel there. In the, in the Derbyshire episode, was it the families who ultimately, did they ultimately finance the mission that found the Derbyshire? I know at one point they financed a mission to the to the wreck site or something. Because we'll get to that. It, it, this is a case where the UK government was very reluctant to do it, claiming too too expensive, too much effort. And their hand was basically forced when an independent team found the wreck. You can't use that excuse anymore because we found it. So, yeah, in, in terms of that, I, I don't know in general. In this case, it wasn't reopened, you know, out of the generosity of the British government. Also, this is one that just the, the vibe that I get from this, the articles about it, the research into it, it's probably much, much more well known in the UK than it is mm -hmm. elsewhere. Um, it seems, you know, like a like a fairly big news story. You know, there's TV specials about it. There's news articles about it. It wasn't one that I had ever heard of. No, I haven't either. Uh, so the Gaul was originally the Ranger Caster built by Brook Marine Limited in 1972. And she was the last of four stern trawlers built for Ranger Fishing Company operating out of North Shields. Uh, North Shields and the expected corollary South Shields are at the mouth of the Tyne on the North Sea, so just east of Newcastle. I feel like we've been spending a lot of time around Great Britain. Yeah, between we just can't leave it. the World War stuff, the Armada, a lot of time around the British Isles. Also, South Shields, I believe that's where James from The Lorman is from. So nice. Shout out to. Jimmy Shakes, who's probably never going to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but what if he does? Uh, so she was delivered on August 3rd, 1972. And by December of 1973, she'd completed five trips with only minor maintenance issues. Mm -hmm. Some of her steering gear equipment had to be replaced. Uh, she had some recurring issues with an oil pipe to the main engine, uh, which caused stoppages of the engine several times on most trips. That was described as a minor issue, but that to me seemed like if this is a recurring thing, you have to stop this multiple times per trip. <laughs> it seems like at least an intermediate issue. Yeah. So these vessels, this class, this Ranger C class of vessels, these are not just for fishing, but also these are factory ships. Yeah, I feel like this isn't the first one we've talked about before. No, the Dalny Vostok uh, in Russia, in the Sea of Okhotsk, we talked about was also kind of a similar uh, ship. And I know that like, Additional issues kind of come with those ships sometimes since they do have like the processing spaces and the freezing spaces and stuff like that. Yeah, you have different equipment. You also typically have a different crew structure um, where you have this kind of totally separate factory staff mm -hmm. that we'll get into. So those the factory areas of this. So after the fish is brought on board, uh, the catch is gutted, filleted, frozen and packaged. So in the holds, you've got frozen boxed fish. And it was actually in that fish processing area where another minor problem sprang up in late 1973 when the drain pumps 
uh, suffered a blockage that had to be cleared to avoid flooding of the compartment. So to accommodate the area needed for the fish factory, Gaul was 66 meters, or 216 feet overall in length, uh, with a breadth of just over 12 meters, or about 40 feet. So a relatively large vessel. This isn't like a small fishing boat like we've discussed before. Yeah, like it's not like a deadliest catch kind of size thing. Quite large for for a fishing vessel that we've discussed. Um, So in October of 73, Ranger Caster was sold to British United Trawlers, under whom she was relocated to Hull, about 100 miles south on the River Humber. And at least some, possibly all, of her sister vessels were sold as well. I don't know if this is just a company acquisition, because we'll mm-hmm. see some of those same sister vessels she was built with for this company are also with her at the new company. Okay. And so it's at this point, new ownership, new location. She gets her new name, Gaul. And that's spelled Gaul like an inhabitant of Roman era France. G-A-U-L. So, uh, moving into our incident portion here. Gaul departed from Hull just after 6 a.m. on January 22nd, 1974, uh, under the command of Peter Nellist, bound for the fishing grounds north of Norway in the Barents Sea. Uh, this is, I think, our second time up in the Barents Sea, the first being, of course, the infamous story of the Russian submarine, Kursk. Yes. Uh, Peter Nellis was serving on the Gaul as a relief skipper. Um, he was transferred from the Orsino in January to fill in for Gaul's previous captain, Ernest Sudaby, who'd been the captain on her previous voyages. So this was his first time serving as skipper on the Gaul. Um, he'd been on a fishing vessel since 1960, but one of the major differences here is that this had the factory and processing areas with that separate factory deck staff mm-hmm. that was different from the ship's crew. Still under command of the captain, but kind of a totally separate thing, totally separate training and background going on. Yeah, I mean, it's just one more thing that you have to manage, I suppose. So when Gaul left Hull, her first mate was George Petty, who had been on the vessel before. But due to an illness that he developed uh, on the trip over, uh, he was deemed unfit for duty. Uh, After putting in in Norway, Petty was replaced by Maurice Spurgeon. So Petty's off the ship, Spurgeon is on. Spurgeon had been fishing since 1951, uh, but like Captain Nellis, he didn't have experience on vessels with this separate factory deck crew. The second and third mate were also new to the vessel. So I'm just hearing a lot of like newness and stuff with the command structure, basically. Yeah, basically your entire top command structure is new to this specific ship and new to this type of ship also. Um, so she sailed with a deck crew of eight. They ranged in age from 24 to 52. Only three of those were known to have experience on this type of vessel. There were six engineers, chief being John O'Brien. I mentioned that separate factory crew. This was 13 factory hands plus the manager, Terrence McGee. The hands ranged in age from 19 to 55. Uh, rounding out the crew, we've got three cooks. Included there is the youngest crew member aboard. That's 17-year-old Carl John Straker. Finally, we've got radio operator John Dune, who's 34. Dune is one of several who's new to the Gaul, but had experience on the other Ranger C-class vessels. So he's familiar with the ship. These are all basically the same. Mm-hmm. He knows how things work. Sounds like it's good to have someone like that, like who kind of knows like the, the basics. So Gaul carried a crew of 34 expected crew when she left. The reopen report indicates that there's two unplanned additions to the crew. Mm-hmm. One of them is John Haywood, who remained on board when she left Hull, even though he was not a member of the crew. There was kind of a guy assigned to this job at the dock of making sure that the only people on board were crew members. Mm-hmm. And this one seemingly <laughs> slip, slipped through. Um, he was apparently friends with one of the other guys on board. He had signed on with another ship, decided not to do that, jumped on board here because he wanted to you know, be with his buddy. He was signed on by Captain Nellis as a general purpose hand you know, during the voyage. Mm-hmm. He had extensive previous fishing experience. He's okay. already there. Why so he brought some value to this. Exactly. Seems like it wasn't that big of a deal. Another was a Mr. Tracy who joined on when the boat stopped in Bridlington, uh, just mm-hmm. up the coast from Hull. So all told, there's 36 aboard the Gaul on what becomes her final voyage. So we mentioned that necessity of switching out uh, chief mates during the voyage. So in addition to that change in officers, Gaul suffered another minor setback on the way to Norway, uh, forcing the vessel to stop and undertake repairs. 
to the automatic steering. Uh, this is at hmm. the urging of the chief engineer. Gaul arrived at the Barents Sea Fishing Grounds on January 29th, 1974. Weather conditions described as favorable, although Gaul would be forced to replace her trawl after the original suffered damage during operation. Well, I'm sure the weather in the Barents Sea stays nice, right? Nice and calm, like glass out there. So by the 7th of February, she reported 19 tons of boxed and frozen fish in her hold. That's a lot of fish. She was fishing alongside her sister vessel, Kelt, when she developed two separate issues. Uh, one, with her steering gear pump quickly fixed. Another, with her automatic pilot control for her steering. So remember, that was a similar issue to what she had on the way over. Issue was serious enough for the chief engineer to request advice from the owners via telephone link call. I don't, I was trying to read about what that means and the technology. Is it like a satellite phone or something? Presumably. I was reading about cell phone technology and <laughs> it's a lot older than I thought it was, honestly. No more calls were made uh, and the issue presumably was resolved. So by about 8.30 p.m., Kelt had lost sight of Gaul, who had stopped to haul in her trawling net. So Kelt heard over the radio that Gaul had once again damaged her net and would be laid up mending it for a while. By 2 a.m. the following morning, so this is the 8th of February, mm -hmm. the weather had deteriorated. Of course it has. To the extent that vessels in the area had to lay and dodge. So they're basically holding position because seas are too rough to do anything else. Mm -hmm. The weather was bad enough that another trawler, the Pict, had her fishing gear completely torn away. That sounds pretty terrifying, actually. In her skipper report at 1030 on the morning of February 8th, she reported continued laying and dodging. So sometime between 9 and 930 that morning, William Brayshaw, the mate on the trawler Swanella, reported that he saw Gaul lying beam onto the waves at a distance of about three to four miles. Hmm. Um, and a VHF radio call was made to Gaul saying, you're all right. We'll be underway shortly and we'll get out of your road because we're going to dodge more into land. Continuing to quote from the MAIB report. Gaul started making way and turned to port to run before the weather, passing Swanella about a mile off her starboard beam. As she passed, Swanella's mate looked at her and saw nothing unusual. Gaul was never seen again. So estimated position of the vessels at this time. Puts them about 75 miles north of the Norwegian coast. Mm -hmm. Really up there. Yeah, like looking at it on the map, like up there. <laughs> a mate on the vessel Somerset Mom later told investigators that he'd heard someone by the name of Pete over the VHF. So this is presumably Peter Nellist, the skipper. Uh -huh. Saying that they were heading for Honingsvag for either repairs or supplies. Interesting. So some indication of where they were going. Uh, between 11.06 and 11.09, there were two private telegrams sent from the Gaul, and that's the last known communication from the trawler. None of the reports, I wasn't able to see, I mean, they're private telegrams. I, I don't know if the contents are available anywhere, mm -hmm. but they seem to not be relevant to the investigation. So 11.09 is the last, like, you know, of any sort of contact mm -hmm. with the vessel. So the following morning, this is February 9th. British United Trawlers Deputy Communications Secretary David Close, uh, he decoded the telegrams sent from the fishing fleet. This was an every morning thing. These were sent daily to compile the office freezer schedule. Curiously, the list that normally contained information from 17 vessels appeared to be one short. The gall was noticeably absent. I would assume that like that happens sometimes. It seems that way. Um... It's not immediately like, oh, they're gone. As we'll see the progression here, you know, something could have come up. The skipper wasn't able to file the report at the expected time. If I remember correctly, they all sent their information to one's designated vessel and that vessel mm, sent the compiled telegram to the office to make sure that everything was together. So Close left the office at noon, but he continued to keep an eye out for news of the gall. So he later called the GPO, which I assume is the general post office. I that's as good a guess as any to see if any late telegrams had come in from the Gaul. But there was nothing there. Um, so presumably, if, say, Gaul had missed the reporting window, maybe they would have just sent it directly on their own. Mm -hmm. um, so he followed up on Sunday uh, by calling the telegram office. But none of the incoming messages 
for BUT either came from or made mention of Gaul. So hoping for some clarification, Close messaged the Gaul directly via Wick Radio with the following message. Why have you not complied with our instructions regarding your daily position? Acknowledge immediately. I think the the tone of that message, I'm sure they probably always keep it quite terse and professional, but I think the tone of it also indicates the fact that this is not something that's immediately seen as an, as an emergency. Mm-hmm. It's more of an annoyance, it seems like. Yeah, this, there's no question about, are you okay? Like, what are the conditions? Um, what's going on? It's, you missed this reporting window. Tell us what's going on. Um, so after contacting a few other company personnel, just trying to explain the situation, mm-hmm. Close's next move was to alert the insurance company agent in Tromso, Norway. Interesting choice. I think it'd be much easier for him to, to get into contact with them directly because he has he's much closer to them. On the morning of February 11th, so now this is Monday, a WIC radio message was sent to all vessels insured by UK Trawlers Mutual. To all vessels fishing North Bank, Norway. All vessels, please report any contact with the Gaul. Last reported fishing North Bank. Nil reports not required. So when there were no positive reports forthcoming, uh, it becomes apparent that search efforts are going to be required. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, getting into some of those search efforts, uh, as we just saw, there's already a, a pretty big presence on this North Bank. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this is a pretty well-trafficked area. There's already 23 trawlers that are more or less on scene when this happens. You know, they're, they're some distance apart, but they can get to where she's supposed to be. So they're, they're participating in the search. Also, there's a significant amount of British and Norwegian assets involved. If I remember correctly, they were already in the vicinity for uh, NATO-related maneuvers that they were Mm -hmm. conducting. Um, So these assets that are on hand here, one of them is the aircraft carrier HMS Hermes, the tribal-class frigate HMS Mohawk, uh, the tanker RFA Tide Flow, uh, and then from the Norwegian Navy, there's the K&M Stavanger and Trondheim, Patrol vessels Nordkappa and Senja. Uh, so in the air, you've got Nimrod and Orion patrol aircraft and Sea King helicopters. That's quite the search contingent. Like that, mm-hmm. that is a lot of assets being brought in. And this is one of the things kind of in the immediate aftermath to, to kind of say that whatever happened happened quickly because you've got a ton of assets mm-hmm. on hand for this search. And as we see here, all those assets, they yield absolutely nothing. Um, There's no sign at all of the Gaul. The official search ends on February 15th. Uh, There's similarities here to, say, the Edmund Fitzgerald, where you've got a ship that's sailing uh, more or less in company with other vessels, Mm -hmm. not reporting any major issues, and it's gone. Then she's gone. So about three months later, so this is May of 74, the only small hint at what happened to the Gaul was picked up by a Norwegian whaling vessel when they found one of Gaul's life buoys floating in the sea. So after all this, the British government, kind of as we talked about at the beginning, they were reluctant to conduct a search for the missing trawler. A search of the seabed would, of course, be a massive undertaking. Because of the limited information available about Gaul's position when she went down, it would be necessary to search hundreds, probably thousands, of square miles of seabed to have a realistic hope of success. A search would inevitably cost a great deal both in time and money. Thinking back to the Derbyshire of parallels of, well, how are we going to find this thing? So with no wreckage to inspect, authorities were restricted basically to inspecting Gaul's sister vessels, uh, namely Curd and Kelt. Initial inspections of both of these vessels revealed some possible clues into potential deficiencies on board Gaul. It was noted that some of the clips on weathertight doors and in some cases, the weathertight doors themselves, were not in working condition. You are requested to give these items your attention and put them into satisfactory working order. I want to know how quickly this inspection was, because, like, if I'm an owner of fishing boats and, like, one of mine went down, right. you can best believe I'm going to look at my other boats and be like, hey. Make sure everything l- is. <laughs> let's make these look nice for yeah. when they inevitably come to look at them. And just a review, we've uh, it's come up a couple times before. We'll talk about these weathertight doors. These will be important. Um, mm-hmm. Just the term weathertight versus watertight. Weathertight, you're talking about a door that, when closed and secured, will keep out basically spray water that's coming over the side. 
mm-hmm. not water that's under pressure. Uh, if we're talking about a watertight door, we're, we're talking about a door that will keep out water under pressure to a certain point. So here the focus is on these weathertight doors. Um, so another point of focus is water buildup in the factory space, uh, something that we know that they had an issue with before. And I feel like that's an issue on these factory vessels. Like We've talked about this on other ships before. Yeah, because you have tons of water that's being used in the factories for factory purposes. So they, they need that extra capacity to get rid of it. There was that blockage in 73. And the investigators looked into the operator's familiarity with vessel stability and free surface effect from water buildup. It appears that when Mr. Sudeby was in command large quantities of water were allowed to build up in the factory space due to the factory staffs once their duties were completed, leaving the factory with water running in the machines from hoses rigged to the fire main. This, in association with blocked up and stopped factory drain pumps, took the ship's engineers, who would discover this situation possibly by chance on leaving the engine room for a cup of tea four to six hours to clear, after turning off the water supplies. In this light, it appears that from the chief engineer, through the owners and skipper, the factory manager should be made aware of the seriousness and instruct his staff accordingly. But this apparently was not done. I think here, this is just a a speculation about crew familiarity. Mm -hmm. Because they talk about how Sudeby, he was the skipper on all these previous voyages. Uh, and mm-hmm. this was, this was the first time it had sailed without him. And you almost get the sense that yeah, obviously it's, it's not great if you're letting these things happen, but it seems like he knew the limits mm-hmm. of the vessel pretty well saying, well, we can let this much build up before we're in real trouble and we have to start pumping it. And the question it raises for me is, you know, that maybe lack of familiarity with a new captain. Does he wait too long? to do this um is he unaware that this is a consistent problem on the vessel or not even unaware but just like doesn't think it's important because it's the factory side of things and you're a ship captain and you're a fisherman Mm -hmm. so it's easy to ignore to be like well it just runs itself like they you know what i mean like you don't you know you don't have to watch that any number of like oversights that could happen here Um, because yeah like repeatedly they you know these reports point out that this is his first time sailing in this capacity um, of having yeah, I to think deal with this other other sector. It would be really easy to be like, well, they know what they're doing and I don't deal with that. So like, I'm just going to let them do their thing and not supervise it. So the initial formal investigation concluded that Gaul was most likely lost due to a succession of heavy waves that rolled her onto her side, leading to down flooding through her non-watertight areas and ultimately her sinking. The later reopened investigation report has this to say about those initial conclusions. The department was left in the uncomfortable position of having to express confidence in an outcome which it in fact viewed as doubtful. It was a situation that inevitably encouraged belief in alternative explanations for the disappearance of the Gaul, however far-fetched. So, in the absence of a solid explanation, and also given the high-leverage location that these trawlers operated in, these are right in the sea lanes out of Murmansk and Vijayeva in the north of Russia, where the Soviet Navy, specifically their submarine fleet, is operating out of. Accusations very quickly come forward that Gaul had been involved in espionage against the Soviets, um, and this had somehow contributed to her loss. It is amazing how quickly these incidents like just attract conspiracy theories. Well, and it's a uh, the big draw from this that we'll see is, you know, explanations will arise to fill a gap. Yes. If one is not provided or the one provided is not satisfactory and some people, you know, are impossible to satisfy in those situations, but they will come up. Alternatives will develop and it doesn't really matter how plausible they might be. We saw that with the um the holo holo. Mm-hmm. How this, you know, pretty small, relatively insignificant ship in the grand scheme of things, you know, this this wasn't like a a government vessel. Immediately, you've got people saying, well, was this, you know, was this sabotage? Was this sunk for some reason? Why were they looking for it with these spy planes? Hmm? Because there wasn't really a great explanation for it. Yeah, it is interesting that these things kind of fill the cracks. Um, Even with like the Ocean Gate stuff going on, 
I think the most insane thing I heard was <laughs> someone, quote, just asking questions about, well, if there was a U.S. Navy Columbia class submarine using active radar, would that be or active sonar? Would that be enough to, you know, break the hull of this ship mm-hmm. or of that submersible? And it's just like you can't just ask questions <laughs> and be that stupid, right? Like we're we're not allowed to do that. Like that's not just asking questions. That's like willful ignorance. Did they shoot the submersible with the Havana syndrome gun? That's basically what. That's the point that we're at. It's like. Everyone wants there to be some grand explanation for these kind of things when, in actuality, probably not doing maintenance or not following regulations is usually the answer. Um, So the theory that she'd been caught and the crew captured by the Russians was a widespread belief among the public and specifically among those close to the crew. I would have to think that tabloids and stuff are just pumping that story so hard. Yeah, we'll talk about um, the TV special in a little bit here. What does Russia gain by capturing a British crew? Uh, we'll see. There's there. Uh, it seems silly, but uh, we'll see. They're actually. It's not the craziest thing in the world, so we'll see why in a second here. There can be no doubt that the decision not to conduct a search caused the gravest dismay to many of the relatives in the crew. Put at its lowest, it was thought that there was a disproportionate reluctance to commit what was perceived as modest funds to the task of putting mines to rest as to the fate of the vessel. The unhappy side effect was to encourage belief in the theory that the vessel had been captured by the Russians, or that there was some other undisclosed reason for not investigating the matter. We're not huge into conspiracy theories here, but no. you, you understand how they develop when yeah. this seemingly, uh, presumably innocent trawling vessel sinks and the government immediately says, don't worry about it. That's yeah, I think mean, you create the conditions for conspiracy theory to happen. There's going to be people, especially grieving family members who just want to know some explanation as to what happened, you know, to their brother or their husband or their father or their son. And to give them absolutely nothing, not even a superficial attempt to look for mm-hmm. this vessel operating in this area. You, you see how that happens, um, mm-hmm. even if you don't necessarily agree with with the rationale behind it you, you see how that environment exists yeah i mean i think we've already touched on this with the ocean gate thing unintentionally there in the beginning when we were talking about how a lot of people really thought and knew that that thing was gone from the beginning but like we still had this whole search thing that might have felt performative at times but like i guess is necessary to avoid this situation if this uh, crew full of you know several millionaires billionaires whatever disappears and the navy just says ah, they're dead forget about it you think that doesn't lead to even more conspiracy theories about this right then everyone's just like well the navy did it <laughs> yeah what did they know <laughs> so the british minister of state for defense at the time bill rogers that is a suspiciously normal name bill rogers for a british minister a man who has nothing to do with the intelligence community bill rogers <laughs> He wrote a letter to local MP John Prescott saying, I can categorically assure you that no RN personnel or MOD equipment were on board Gaul. I can also assure you that the British trawler fleet is not involved in any way in intelligence gathering. This applies as much to equipment as to personnel. So, as will come out later, one of those statements is probably true. One of them is demonstrably, admittedly by the government, false. Did like one of these guys have like a Jason Bourne backstory? Uh, no, that's not the one that's false. Oh, oh. The reopened inquiry report, it goes very deep into the back and forth between the victim's families, MPs, and Ministry of Defense regarding those theories for the disappearance. I will say, and I have no idea if this is true. I feel like MPs are a little bit more accessible than like members of Congress. Like, I just feel like British people are able to go yell at their MP, like on a local level, way easier. Like, I just, I mean, I think here, certainly on a local level, are more accessible out in the community. Whereas, like, yeah, I mean, the people who represent you on the federal level, level in the United States are largely inaccessible, it seems. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how I would like physically meet my congressman if I so chose to. Not that I want to necessarily. So we won't go deep into the the exchanges there. Um, 
for reasons that we'll see here very soon. Um, and that has to do with the discovery of the wreck. Mm-hmm. So no concrete steps were taken uh, in the case of the Gaul for, uh, for over two decades uh, here. When at this point, a search team funded by Anglia Television and the Norwegian Television Company, they set out for the North Cape Bank to find the wreck in August of 1997. So you can see this is still a story that was in people's minds of saying, we want some closure here. Mm-hmm. This isn't some tiny fishing boat where, you know, a handful of people died. This is 36 people who are on this. Um, and it sank in very confusing circumstances. They were operating off of information first picked up in 1975 when the Norwegian fishing vessel Ryro snagged her fishing gear on some sort of underwater obstacle. The reported position of this event was 72 degrees, 4 minutes north, 25 degrees, 5 minutes east. And the search team thought there was a good chance of this being the gall. So the wreckage was first identified through side scan sonar and then positively ID'd as the gall through the use of an ROV. Uh, the gall had come to rest at a depth of about 280 meters or 918 feet. Interesting. So, like, they really did have some good information going. They really this, did like. um, to operate on, and it it is kind of a shame that it took that long. You know, it took over mm-hmm. 20 years for someone to to really look into that information. And part of that actually was, uh, I believe, if I remember from the TV special, one of the crew on board that Norwegian vessel was uh, was an Englishman, and he kind of had filed that away in his head as as mm. something useful for later on. Yeah, I'm sure it's a story that he like definitely had heard or remembered. So the initial surveys weren't really able to tell a lot about why the gall went down, um, but they were able to show that the front of the bridge was undamaged and that the windows were intact. And these results are actually broadcast as part of a Channel 4 TV program called Secrets of the Gaul in hmm. November 1997. That's available on YouTube. I was I watched it before this. Um, there's a, there's a lot of good um, insights that were found from that, and the tone of it's actually pretty funny in parts. Um, <laughs> there's at the beginning when they're when they're starting the search, the narrator says, "To do this job, considered too expensive for the British Navy, we link up with a small group of Norwegian deep sea specialists who transformed a former ferry, the Risoy, into a state of the art underwater survey vessel." So a little dig there. I mean, but the thing is, like, it didn't seem like it was actually that hard to find. It does seem right. a little suspicious well, that right away there's hand ringing over, like, oh, we don't even know where to look. And if I remember correctly, it was the same with the Derbyshire, where once mm-hmm. they did start that that search, it took them, what, a matter of hours mm-hmm. to find it? Yeah, I think it was pretty quick. So getting into some of the investigations, the reopened investigations in Aftermath here, um, like we said at the beginning, the discovery of the wreck itself saying, here, here it is, look at it, we have it on video. That sort of forced their hands, it seems like, saying, well, we kind of have to investigate it now. That was reopened in 1998 um, and then published in 2004. So shortly before that investigation began, a paper submitted to the Library of the House of Commons, it went into pretty great detail about the extent to which the British trawler fleet was engaged in intelligence gathering. Interesting. So it describes one such mission involving a trawler, the Invincible. In the spring of 1972, an operation was attempted to recover a Soviet test missile, which was believed to have landed in international waters in the Barents Sea. It was agreed that a trawler would provide a more discreet means than a Royal Navy ship. The mission was unsuccessful. In September 1973, a similar mission was mounted. This time, the trawler FV Lord Nelson was used. Again, the operation was unsuccessful. This operation was the last recorded use of trawlers for specific intelligence gathering. So one of the things we can draw from that is that there's kind of a a mix there. You know, was the fleet involved in intelligence gathering operations? Technically, yes. But then also there's the issue of were they effective enough to continue using? Possibly not. It doesn't seem like they were particularly effective. Right. Yeah, it doesn't. So if that's taken at face value, though, that admission, that statement, the trawler fleet was no longer being used for intelligence gathering missions by the time of the loss of the Gaul. Mm-hmm. Um, however, this is the issue we find here with these initial denials, you know, that that categorical 
denial of any connection between the fleet and intelligence, it makes it a lot harder to trust that second statement of why would I believe that you just stopped in 1972? Mm -hmm. So what did the reopened investigation actually find um, on board the goal? So the ROVs deployed to the wreck, they were equipped with cameras for inspecting compartments, hydraulic hammers for smashing through portholes as needed, and one ROV was equipped with shears to cut through trawling nets if required. They ultimately found that it was much easier and safer to just work around them rather than trying to cut through them. The wreck was at a 35 degree starboard heel, level fore and aft facing in a northeasterly direction. Uh, because of the heel, the port side is a lot more accessible than the starboard. The specifics of the search are in the MAIB reports, just compartment by compartment. And that includes search for remains of the crew. Mm-hmm. Nine compartments were able to be examined. Uh, access couldn't be gained to the radio room, the crew's mess or galley. Mm-hmm. The cabins were described as, quote, in a state of chaos. I mean, I would assume. <laughs> yes. Um, so this included non-structural bulkheads collapsing forward into adjacent cabins. Sightings of what were thought to be human remains were made in three compartments. Um, two of these were four-man cabins uh, and also the radio officer's cabin, uh, which I believe was just an individual cabin. So this provided some satisfaction to the families, you know, that at least efforts are being taken to search the vessel. Yeah, I mean, I think finding human remains on board, it indicates that whatever happened, happened very quickly. And it also, it helps to dispel some of those conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it rules out the possibility that the ship was captured by the Russians and the and the crew taken off. Mm-hmm. That's when you can discount here. Also, you know, fi- they find the wreckage of the vessel. It's clear that it, you know, it hasn't been torpedoed. It hasn't been sunk by hostile action. It hasn't been rammed by a NATO submarine. That was one of the theories put forward by the uh, by was. the by the um, the TV special. And again, like we said with the media, like it, it helps I mean, it, if people are going to watch your hour long TV yeah. special, you got to give them something or a few somethings to, to play with. So in terms of actual structural damage to the ship, survey found that her bow had suffered pressure damage. And it was concluded that the bow damage was unlikely to be caused by a collision with another object. Um, so very relevant to recent events. Uh, I've extracted an interesting excerpt here from where they're talking about Uh, this pressure damage. The very high pressures to which watertight objects are subjected when underwater are well known. Submersibles operating at great depths have to be manufactured for materials such as titanium to withstand these. What is not so well known is that pressures at even modest depths are significant and capable of exerting immense forces on any structure that remains watertight. Once flooding has taken place, the pressure on both sides of any hole plating will have equalized and the situation does not arise. See, a couple things here is, first of all, just the immense pressure you're dealing with with the ocean. You saw that in a lot of the general discourse about the the Titan submersible Mm -hmm. of, I mean, it's it's very hard to conceptualize what what is 400 atmospheres of pressure. What does that even mean? And like this report says, like, it happens quickly. Like, I don't think people realize that, like, there's a lot of pressure even at moderate depth. Yeah, like, there's a video of someone swimming down into a, like, a hole or something, and they're holding, like, a, I think it's just, like, a plastic bottle. And you can see how even not really that deep, it's starting to get crushed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here we're talking about, uh, what do we say, like, 900 feet deep, mm-hmm. which, you know, compared to some of our wrecks, that's pretty deep. But compared to what we're talking about with the Titanic, that's nothing. Um, that's not even close. I thought it's interesting that he specifically says it should be made out of titanium, not carbon fiber. Yeah. And this is like 30 years ago. We're talking about this, how this is a, this is a well-known fact. Yeah. This is a well-established fact decades ago for what, what are what's required here? Also answers a question that I did see raised, um, by some reputable, reputable and some non-reputable Sources just explaining, well, why does the Titanic still exist if the pressure is so high? And talking I did about, see someone ask that question. And talking about, well, once the pressure is equalized, the crushing doesn't happen. You know, it, it's these watertight compartments that are important. I mean, like literally go play with a cup in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can, you can figure it out. Little kids quick. can figure this stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So the MIB report, it discounted the possibility that the ship was lost to fire, explosion, hostile act, or structural failure. Um, and her location ruled out striking any underwater rock or obstruction. You know, this is deep water, she said. She's not just going to run into something. Except a NATO submarine. Yes, except a NATO or Soviet submarine. That was that was one of the theories here. Yeah, there was the capture theory, the sinking theory, the collision theory. Uh, the other the other main what you'd call conspiracy type theories is that she snagged on secret undersea cables hmm. um, and that dragged her under. That's one of the more popular theories. But I think as we've seen with the rest of this fleet, these these fleets are losing their trawling gear left and right. Mm-hmm. I would struggle to believe that snagging on a cable would drag down the ship rather than just tearing off the trawling gear. Right. And like we've discussed a fishing vessel that snagged a submarine. Yes, it was the it was the Antares. Like we kind of know what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And it it doesn't look like this necessarily. So uh, what they did find evidence for was flooding. There is indisputable evidence that some weathertight doors and hatches were wide open when Gaul sank. Weathertight doors and hatches are designed to remain firmly closed in the roughest weather, and to be effective, are strongly built and heavy. Four were found open on <clears throat> four were found open in Gaul. They were the factory companionway door, the door to the engine room escape, and two fish loading hatches. The survey could not reveal why or how these doors and hatches were opened, but the inescapable reality is that they were all open when Gaul foundered and could have caused rapid flooding. So the idea here, and we've seen this on other underwater surveys, is that these doors, they don't just come open Mm -hmm. unless there's some very significant traumatic force to them. So if they're open on the seabed, then they were more likely than not open on the surface. And that's kind of what they take out of this is that if all these things go right with the heavy seas, her rolling on her side at a significant angle, if these doors that are designed to keep that water out are left open, in some cases secured open. Um, Mm -hmm. So we know that this wasn't an accident necessarily, but this was probably operating procedure. Then that's one way you could flood this ship extremely fast especially if, say, she's already been building up water um, that isn't being pumped out. And that's something where I think, like, if I'm, you know, you think about, like, that captain, and he's not used to working on a factory vessel, so he's probably potentially ignoring that part of it. Or even if he sees that there's a lot of water in the factory compartments, oh, it's always wet down there. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's always like that. And then with these hatches open, you know, once you lose buoyancy, it's too late. You go from being on the surface to going under yeah. in the matter of seconds. Yeah, and it, it, it aligns very well with what we see with this. It's 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 so rarely just one major incident that sinks a ship. It's a mm-hmm. collection of multiple things that stack onto each other, and maybe that contributes to losing the ship. I mean, in, in my mind, the scenario of putting forth here with those hatches open, it makes perfect sense that she takes a big wave, and that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. You go to negative buoyancy and you don't come back. You you know, you take a wave and you don't come back up essentially. And no one has time to call for mayday or put a life jacket on like that. The evidence seems to indicate that that is what happened here. And like we said, with structural failure, that's something that typically, and despite the fact that it sounds catastrophic, it's something that typically does give time to make a mayday call. Mm -hmm. Um, If, if there's, if your hull has been holed, that's typically something you can at least get out an SOS. Mm-hmm. So moving ahead to some conclusions from the MAIB report here. The follow-up reports, ultimately, they don't disagree with the conclusions of the first one. They do provide some really key support for how this happens. Mm-hmm. You know, usually you want a very detailed explanation of, okay, what happened? Why did this sink? Gaul was heading with the seas broad on her port bow when her bow was pushed to starboard and a group of very large breaking waves impacted her port beam, rolling her just beyond 90 degrees to starboard. This action caused the fish-loading hatches to fall partially open. She recovered to list at least 40 degrees to starboard, but this was sufficient to allow down-flooding through the open, weather-tight hatches and the doors on the trawl deck. She probably sank in less than 10 minutes. 
still harping on this issue of familiarity. We talk about why was there no distress call? And we've said before, you know, that's not something that you issue lightly, typically, Mm -hmm. um, for these captains. And yeah, if you think you have things under control, you're not going to do that. And if this thing is, is sinking in less than 10 minutes, it doesn't give you a lot of time to realize this is beyond what you expected. Yeah, again, like if the captain's like, hey, there's there's some water in the processing rooms, go pump that out. Maybe he means like, I'm tired of looking at it, not like, hey, you need to go do that now because we're in danger. You know, I think not always knowing what's important and what's really important necessarily. So family members continue to pursue alternative theories, um, but that's similar to any wreck that occurs in questionable circumstances. We saw this with the Fitzgerald. You know, with that, there's as many different opinions about how it happened and how to treat the wreckage as there are people affected. I think also when you don't have a 100% definitive thing, who wants to blame the crew, right? I mean, especially for the family's sake, like if you're the family, you don't want the answer to be, well, the crew did something wrong. Yeah, you don't you don't want the solution to be, well, they didn't close the doors they were supposed to close. That's not a satisfying that's or that's not a feel good response or explanation for that. Yeah, and I think you see that in a lot of these, that there's a reluctance to blame the crew. And, you know, obviously, that might not be the only factor. But in this case, like, it sounds like it was a factor. And it it wouldn't have been unique among this. Exactly. And I think that is the key. You're not saying like, hey, this one vessel is doing something wrong. And there are cases, there's obvious cases where that is a thing. But in this, it seems like it's kind of just they're operating off standard practices in the industry. And... It was un- it was an unfortunate time to be doing that. We had some of that with the Ocean Ranger, um, mm-hmm. the oil platforms, where you had crews saying, "Well, when I was on Ocean Ranger, I didn't see the inside of a lifeboat ever. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we didn't do safety drills compared to other ones where you know this was something that we did weekly, or this was the first thing the captain talked to me about." So yeah, sometimes there are outliers, and one of the big questions here was, "Well, why didn't any of the other?" vessels sink if they're if they have these similar practices they were in similar conditions why didn't they sink and really that i mean it just comes down to a lot of it is chance you know if you take these waves just perfectly they talk about her sitting beam on to the seas that's not ideally how you want to be in these situations i think too like you can cut corners and not do maintenance and things a lot and be okay in fact most of the time you're okay until you're not. And that's really all that matters is you only have to be wrong once, not to keep going back to Ocean Gate, but I feel like that's just the relevant thing. They went to the Titanic and were successful until they weren't. And like when you're dealing with such high stakes, like you can't be wrong even one time. Yeah, there's no there's no minor mistakes on a deep sea submarine. And I mean, same thing in a fishing boat in the Barrett Sea. I don't really want to be wrong in that scenario. Like I want all the things to go right because it's dangerous. Like you said, even when everything goes right. So in terms of final thoughts, I think Gaul's a really prime example of how, when there is no explanation available, alternative ones will spring up to fill that Mm -hmm. absence. That's a natural thing. um, Regardless of how implausible they might be, people want to know what happened. People want to feel that they have some control over the understanding of the situation. A lot of times there are avenues available to understand those things better, as we saw with, again, back to our friend, the Titan. There's huge amounts of true, legitimate experts on these subjects. Mm-hmm. Their stuff is available. Uh, Subbrief being one great example of, you know, this is information that's out there almost right away, putting out very clear, very well-documented, well-sourced stuff um, from experienced people explaining why and how these things happen people still have to take advantage of those, Mm -hmm. um, you know, rather than pursuing these, but you at least understand the human urge to, to have these things explained. And if, if the people in charge are saying, no, I'm not going to explain that to you. We're not going to try to explain that to you. These things happen. Mm -hmm. So really that is, I mean, that's the story here of the gall. I was interested when I found this one, because it seemed kind of like any of the other smaller trawlers or fishing vessels we've done, but really discovering that this this was a big has been a big media focus in the UK for for some time, mm-hmm. you know, coming up next year, I guess, would be the 50th anniversary. So, I mean, I'm assuming that there'd be some sort of commemoration memorial for that coming up next year. 
yeah, I mean, that was a, that was an interesting story to research. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of stuff to go through, obviously a lot of reports that we'll share that have all kinds of technical detail in them. I thought it was an appropriate one to cover um, given the big story from last week. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, strangely relevant in so many ways. I don't know. It's, uh, I'll be interested to see kind of what else we learn about Ocean Gate as things go on. I'm sure there will be lawsuits involved, depositions. Uh, I think the Canadian maritime body is the one doing the report on it. So that's something to be looking out for. But yeah, I mean, I think it, this is a great example of these stories are sort of evergreen. There's so many similarities in so many of these stories, and it's just always interesting. So with that, we'll wrap things here for the week, and we'll be back next week with another episode for you. So thank you for listening along. This will be quite a long episode, I think, um, and we will talk to you again soon.